When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Lieutenant Colonel Jim Reardon. Reardon served as a forward observer in the Marine Corps in Vietnam. Well, I enlisted uh, at a time when it was um, uh, really popular uh, to to do things uh, for your country. Uh, and uh, I uh, liked the challenge of the Marine Corps. It was uh, an idea that appealed to me. Uh, and the idea of being a Marine officer uh, with its leadership challenges uh, was something that um, had always fascinated me. And uh, so while I was in college, I... Uh, uh, joined the Marine Corps through what was known as the Platoon Leaders Corps, and uh, uh, did my summer training at Quantico, and uh, then went on in uh, after I had graduated from college. Uh, initially, uh, I did uh, follow the, the same path that uh, you would expect for all Marine officers. I attended the basic school at Quantico, Virginia. Uh, and after uh, graduating from the basic school, I attended the, um, at that time, the Marine Corps was doing its uh, own artillery training at Quantico. I did the uh, field artillery officer's basic course at Quantico uh, and then uh, uh, joined the uh, 3rd Marine Division uh, in Okinawa. I uh, was assigned to the 12th Marine Regiment and um, picked up duties as a forward observer. The primary duties of a forward observer would be to uh, be uh, the primary fire support coordinator uh, for an infantry company. In those days, we would uh, move with the um, uh, company commander and the uh, uh, company headquarters. Um, uh, we would uh, be able to uh, bring fire to bear for the company in support of the company's uh, scheme of maneuver on the ground. 
Well, generally, uh, what you would do is you would um, try to position yourself relatively close to the company commander so that you would understand and know his uh, scheme of maneuver, that you could then best pick targets uh, that were of greatest threat uh, and most appropriate for uh, the application of artillery. And um, we would then identify the targets and uh, attack them uh, with artillery uh, uh, through uh, radio communications uh, and then adjust fire until the uh, target was either destroyed or neutralized. You need forward observers uh, because artillery is an indirect uh, fire weapon. Uh, Under most circumstances, the artillerymen, uh, the cannoneers, uh, cannot see the targets that they shoot at. Um, and you need somebody who is close enough to be able to see the the target and then to be able to adjust the fire on the target. There are a lot of different factors that, that impact on uh, putting fire on a target. Uh, weather, uh, the terrain, um, uh, just even the rotation of the earth, all of these things uh, affect the ability to put fire on the target. And because uh, you cannot see uh, the target from the cannoneer's uh, uh, perspective, now you need someone who can locate the target and can put uh, the, the correct amount of fire on the target either to neutralize that target or to destroy it. Well, I uh, de- deployed from Okinawa uh, with um, uh, 2nd Battalion, 9th Marines, uh, went in country with them uh, in uh, mid-1965, would have been. Yeah, mid-65. And um, I went directly down to to the company uh, and um, trained with the company uh, and then um, uh, moved with the, uh, the company for... Now, wherever the company went, uh, we went. The first encounter was um, uh, in, a, in a morning, uh, full daylight, uh, as we had uh, moved across rice fields uh, uh, by a village, and we uh, came under fire. Now, it was uh, pretty strange because there were a lot of uh, civilians in the uh, in the field. And um, uh, one of the most uh, important things for us uh, was to be able to uh, move the civilians out of the way uh, so that we could indeed attack. Uh, the civilians really uh, hampered the movement, as I remember. And uh, because of them, uh, we simply had to uh, use small arms fire to suppress what was coming uh, from the uh, from the village. When we did, uh, we went ahead and uh, moved through, and uh, by that time, the enemy had uh, faded into the uh, into the bush. Uh, my reaction initially was um, uh, was kind of nonplussed, uh, you know. Uh, so that's what it's like to be shot at, and um, then you uh, then you realize what it is. Uh, the real shock uh, was not the initial contact. Uh, the real shock uh, would come later. Uh, through the um, uh, through the surprise, which would take place so much at night, uh, would take place uh, with mortars or heavy artillery um, and those types of things. That was that was a source of real concern. It's waking up from a very very sound sleep, uh, not knowing what a uh, what the situation is. Um, 
and uh, trying to assess it uh, primarily in the dark, trying to move sometimes uh, and see uh, where you're uh, where you're at and how you're able to move around, um, so that you don't either endanger uh, those who are with you or become mistaken uh, by your own people. That was always difficult, um, and of course uh, during um, incoming uh, mortar fire or artillery fire, it was um, it was always. Uh, uh, a wonder as to you know the randomness sometimes of things. It, it just uh, it's trying to get yourself to move. It's it's to react, uh, not to sit and be helpless. Um, and um, if you're able to control that fear and move forward, uh, the situation will generally get better. Uh, if you come to the fear and and let yourself sit. Um, then you lose the ability sometimes to maneuver. Uh, when you do that, then you really do take casualties. First casualties were um, were not um, as hard to deal with because they were uh, they were casualties that were that we knew that would survive, um, and um, it was never easy uh, to deal with casualties at, at any time. Um, perhaps the, the worst was, uh, in an artillery position, uh, on the rock pile when we had uh, started to unload, um, uh, ammunition and we had ammunition open and I had just gotten in as a, uh, I would have to be the exec for the artillery battery at that time. And, um, we just received replacements in, um, a whole series of replacements that had come in to replace guys who had been rotated out or who had been wounded and left. And um, uh, they hadn't been with us. Uh, The replacements hadn't been with us uh, 30 minutes. Uh, We lost a whole series of them um, through heavy artillery fire. Uh, That, I think, was was perhaps the the hardest to take um, uh, of anything. A lot of times... um, with casualties, uh, particularly with the companies, when you were on the field and moving, you would evacuate them out very, very, very quickly and to get them into medical treatment. Um, and I suppose that that has a very, very reassuring effect on those who are around you to know that that you're not going to be left, uh, that people will indeed take care of you. And and that gives people, it gave me a great deal of, of courage to know that uh, that my uh, comrades would never leave me uh, if there was a possibility that I could be gotten out. And I think that that made it a whole lot easier for lots of us, and particularly not having the wounded around and having to be around them for prolonged periods of time made it in Vietnam uh, particularly much easier to handle. Uh, later on, when we'd fly out to the hospital ship to make visits and things like that, that's when it really was hard uh, to see guys aboard the uh, the hospital ships and, and talk to them and, and things like that. Uh, or to go down to Charlie Med uh, when we were down at uh, around Da Nang and, and uh, go into the wards stuff uh, to see your uh, mates. It was uh, that's when it really hit you. Fear is always healthy. I don't know anybody who is not afraid. The difference, I think, a lot of times between those who were really successful or those who were able to absolutely, who were, who had the capacity to control fear 
And um, fear is healthy because it, it causes you, uh, I think, to think. And if you you had the training to back you up to understand that you have to move when you're under fire, uh, that you have to do things, uh, you, be, you don't become foolhardy. Um, and um, uh, I think that is a, that's a key uh, to survival. Um, the idea is being able to 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 be successful in a battle and, and to live to fight. It's not dying in battle, it's living. And that's what you need to do. One of the differences about Vietnam uh, for forward observers um, was, uh, was a tactical difference. The, the tactics at the time uh, called for uh, the clearance of fire uh, missions with, uh, under the principle of silence being consent. In other words, if somebody did not intervene to stop the mission, the mission would go forward. Uh, in Vietnam, because of being so uh, so close to all of the uh, the villages uh, and so close to the population in a lot of areas, uh, at least particularly initially, uh, and because of not knowing sometimes uh, where all of the uh, the units were, uh, particularly the Vietnamese units and others, uh, there required uh, a positive clearance on missions. And uh, that positive clearance of missions uh, would sometimes, in, in the initial days when we moved in uh, to Vietnam, uh, could be a lengthy procedure. Um, and it wasn't until later when we were able to work out the, um, uh, the control measures that were so necessary uh, to, um, to be able to bring fire to bear in a relatively short period of time. Um, once the mission was received, it was monitored uh, at fire support uh, coordination headquarters uh, and um, waiting for the mission. Uh, this tactical situation could change on the ground and often did. Uh, the first fire mission that I uh, fired in Vietnam uh, took 45 minutes to clear. And by the time the clearance was given, uh, we were virtually uh, out of contact. Uh, the, uh, the contacts we had initially were short. And um, did not take long. They were the engagements were were generally not very long. They were fleeting, um, and um, uh, rarely did we have engagements in 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 the daytime. Uh, it was uh, more uh, engagements um, in uh, pre dawn or uh, at dark, um, and that's when uh, we would have to wait sometimes uh, so that they would know where where all of the patrols were. Um, Find, make sure that you were not going to fire on friendlies because um, uh, that was a devastating effect uh, to be fired on. As a forward observer with a, uh, with a rifle company, uh, you would do the same thing that any Marine rifleman would do. Uh, the challenges that a forward observer would face were, were always the same as any infantryman. He shared the same burdens. In a tactical sense and situation, uh, the challenge would be to understand the commander's scheme of maneuver, to understand the company in his personality well enough to know where to position yourself to make best use of your, uh, of your supporting arms. Most of the time, I would have a, a forward observer team consisting of two radio operators and a scout sergeant myself. 
I would take uh, and split the forward observer team into two uh, units, the scout sergeant and one radio operator would often travel with lead elements. Uh, and I would uh, maintain as close a position with the uh, company commander as I could so that I could understand what the other platoons were doing. And then I could then move, uh, uh, you know, when we came into contact uh, to the point where, where, it was, uh, where it was really needed. A marine company has got to operate uh, like a like a well-oiled machine, and you've just got to integrate yourself to be successful as a forward observer uh, with the company. You have to be in the company commander's uh, hip pocket. You have to have his confidence. I worked with commanders who were not fairly competent uh, or were, were not fairly comfortable, not competent, but comfortable with um uh with the use of artillery particularly in the in the early days uh they weren't sure how close to bring it uh they were concerned over the length of time that it would take uh, to bring it in and things like that and it took time to be able to work with the company uh to develop the degree of confidence uh in your skills as a forward observer so that the company commander would uh, allow you to uh, to bring the fire to bear uh when it was necessary uh in addition uh what we would do, uh, the Marine Ford observers would function as the company commander's fire support coordinator and would often integrate targets with other supporting arms, uh, whether they were small mortars uh, or whether they were uh, the artillery that was in direct support or, uh, in many cases, the um, the aviation elements that we had. Uh, sometimes we would have a forward air controller with us and sometimes we would not. So the forward observers would pick up additional skills a lot of times um, to be able to uh, bring in naval gunfire or uh, things like that if the situation warranted. Calling fire on your uh, on yourself is a uh, is a mission of last resort. That happens when you're about to be overrun, uh, when there is no other alternative uh, to stopping the enemy from uh, from taking your position. Uh, forward observers would always, um, in Vietnam, plan uh, for fires on their own positions. That uh, was used several times in Vietnam, but uh, it was used uh, relatively sparingly. You would plan for that eventuality uh, with the hope that you never had to, in fact, employ it. But I do know that uh, uh, a lot of places, uh, particularly when we moved into places like Con Tien, uh, up to the rock pile and other places, the Razorback, um, up in northern i um, We always made sure that we had uh, fires planned uh, on our own position. It was said that on the ship that traveled to the POW camp, the conditions were so horrible and the hold was so crowded that men would simply die standing up. Letters from My Father is a new docu-series podcast starring Jack Quaid from Oppenheimer and the Boys. It's the story of one woman who retraces her World War II veteran father's steps after he was captured by the Japanese and kept in one of the most notorious POW camps and had to find a way to survive. You can find Letters from My Father from Voyage Media anywhere you listen to podcasts. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. 
It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Harvest Moon uh, occurred uh, for us very early uh, in Vietnam. One of the first major um, uh, operations we went on moved in uh, south of Da Nang and, and uh, way up into the mountains. Finally got out of the rice fields, rice paddies. And we had moved for several days with a uh, company of Marines, uh, with, with several companies of Marines, uh, into an area looking for a battalion headquarters. And uh, we finally found it uh, and, and destroyed it very, uh, very deep into the uh, into the jungle. And on the way back out, it was late in the afternoon uh, when um, we came down a ridge line. And as I recall that day, it was uh, we were in a hurry to try to make a landing zone so we could get out before dark. Uh, and uh, this uh, long finger uh, come down with uh, out of the uh, the hills with a with grass on 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 it, uh, relatively tall grass, and uh, one company went down one side, and one company went down uh, the other side. We were physically separated when the other company became very very heavily engaged. Um, it was in that action that um, Harvey Barnum was able to uh, assume control of a marine company. Uh, he was a forward observer from the same battery that uh, that I was with. And um, uh, Harvey uh, reorganized a Marine company uh, after the company commander had been killed and um, subsequently was uh, awarded the uh, Medal of Honor. And um, uh, that was quite a uh, quite an operation that because of the, the terrain, we were physically unable to move in support of the company. During that period of time, um, Harvey Barnum uh, had uh, really distinguished himself quite well in this uh, in this engagement, uh, uh, and did essentially the same thing that we had talked about uh, about earlier. So it uh, was quite an operation. I was uh, with the um, uh, with one of the Marine companies as a Ford observer. Uh, I was still a second lieutenant at the time. And um, we're moving down, trying to to get into this landing zone to secure the landing zone so we could get out that night. Uh, and um, uh, we did not come under fire, but the other company came under massive fire. And I think it was um, by the grace of God that we just happened to to move down in this particular area to to move in, in two different directions. And um, the company headquarters was uh, was severely attacked. Uh, the one that Harvey Barnum was with, and uh, it was only through his ability to to reorganize and, and pull things together that uh, that they were able to survive. And the company commander was uh, was killed in that action. 
The worst day, undoubtedly for me as a forward observer, uh, had to be uh, as, a, as a lieutenant patrolling at night in the area south of the Caudo River near Hill 55. Um, and um, we had moved out uh, at night uh, with a platoon-sized ambush. The um, company commander had asked me, uh, because of the nature of the mission, if I would take my forward observer team and accompany the platoon that night because they were expecting trouble. And I moved out with the uh, platoon, and uh, in this case, I positioned myself relatively close to the center of the platoon, near the platoon commander. We had um, been out a couple of hours patrolling, and we're near uh, we're near the base of Hill Fifty Five when we became in, uh, when we became enmeshed in a what I would describe as a minefield ambush. Uh, where the mines were triggered uh, electrically and also mechanically. And um, the lead elements of the platoon had been allowed to pass partially through the field uh, when they hit. Uh, they hit the uh, the center of the platoon where I was, and immediately uh, the um, platoon commander uh, was severely wounded. And uh, several other people uh, were severely wounded uh, at that time and knocked out some of the, uh, the communications. And uh, the artillery has a capability of interfacing its, its communications with the infantry. And I was fortunate enough to be able to reestablish communications to assist in the reorganization of the platoon, finding the, the dead and wounded uh, bringing them out of the area, reestablishing the contact with the people who had moved through the ambush killing zone. And then coming back, uh, we were able to, um, uh, to use artillery illumination that night to move ourselves uh, back together into a cohesive unit and uh, to evacuate uh, the dead and wounded. We brought uh, medevac choppers in that night under illumination and then um, uh then uh, reorganized ourselves and moved back out of the area after a while. We did complete the mission, uh, although it was uh, was truncated. <laughs> what we did is we went out to, to make contact, and we indeed did make contact. When you're moving uh, with a platoon at night uh, into an ambush situation, what you're hoping to do is to be, be relatively unobtrusive, relatively quiet. Um, we have stripped down all of the unnecessary gear. You're trying to move with some sort of stealth. Um, that night was very, very, very dark. Um, overcast, um, clammy, um, as I would recall, as we were getting ready to move into the, um, uh, into the areas, what we were actually doing was kind of exploring the approaches up to Hill 55. And, um, so we happened to, at this point in time, have been on a uh, relatively wide road area, and we were off on the shoulders of the road. Uh, the platoon was split on either side and moving down it. And um, what, I, what I recall is just a brilliant flash um, that was um, probably about chest high. Uh, and... Um, the concussion from that, uh, and then the firing took place um, uh, from both sides. 
our lead elements obviously had moved through and to make contact, uh, and then the firing ceased uh, relatively soon. It was kind of quiet. We had to figure out, you know, who was left, who survived, you know, what you had. Uh, and the first thing that I did um, was to make contact with my scout sergeant, uh, who happened to be with the lead element, have him stay put, and then look for for the platoon commander. And um, not finding him, I found a platoon sergeant, uh, a Marine staff sergeant who was with us, um, and used him to uh, begin to figure out who was left uh, and what we needed to do to bring things in. And then uh, at that point in time, this is very, very fast, I needed to clear an area. Uh, so I actually uh, went in back into the minefield to clear an area to find the uh, the people and bring them on out. We reestablished uh, communications, requested the medevacs, informed the company uh, commander that I had control of the uh, of the platoon, uh, and that we would reorganize ourselves and, and bring ourselves out once the um, uh, medical evacuations had taken place. Well, it's the idea that you would never leave anybody. It's hard to understand this sometimes. Um, Marines under fire, uh, men under fire, don't respond out of, you know, idealism, uh, love of country, and all these other grand things, you know, that underlie, uh, underlie us. What they seem to understand, what they seem to, to do is they, they respond to each other. And that's a very, very powerful bond, uh, and it's an obligation that you take. It's something you have to do, you, you know, you... Once you assess the situation, once you know what's happened, uh, you've got to do something. If you don't act, uh, then you're begging for a great deal of more, uh, of more trouble. Uh, and each person has got to do his job as he sees it uh, at that point in time and at that situation. Um, and I can remember, you know, asking for an additional flak jacket, you know, I grabbed an additional flak jacket and, you know, put it over my chest, uh, you know, to, uh, to help me as I move back uh, through this area, um, you know, just to find people. Uh, we had to know, I had to know whether, you know, whether people were alive or dead, you know, where folks were in, in order to pull things together. And once you pull things together, then you can become a unit again and you can become an effective force. If you don't do that, then you're piecemealed and you'll be picked off in little pieces. They'll be chopped up and spit out as little pieces of bait. So you do things because of other Marines. Uh, it was the one comfort that I had uh, being out there is to, to know that if something happened to me, people would do whatever was necessary to take care of me. And um, so your obligation, on the other hand, is to, is to live up to that sort of a standard. It's a pretty high demand, and it's one of the things that uh, that makes a marine a marine. Massing fires uh, is a technique of bringing uh, different calibers of uh, weapons and different weapons from different locations to bear on a uh, on a single target or a group or series of targets. And when this is done, uh, what you do is you give weight to battle. It can make the difference uh, between success and failure. Um, at the uh, company level in, in Vietnam, a lot of times we would pre-plan fires on targets that we knew that we were going to attack. 
uh, and we would uh, use try to use the element of surprise. Uh, fire would be adjusted or registered at a different location, different spot, and maybe not uh, totally unrelated to the target. And at the time of the attack, the uh, the uh, targets would be shifted uh, uh, and then masked so that the fires would all arrive at the same time. It certainly gives surprise uh, to battle it, and it certainly gives uh, the element of weight uh, to your attack uh, so that you can be successful. The impact on the enemy is awesome. And history is replete uh, with the impact of, of what happens. It's, it's the psychological devastation. Uh, it's the ability to keep an enemy's head down uh, as you move close uh, to engage him at close, uh, close quarters. It's the ability to keep fire onto the target right up to the very, very last minute and then shift it to a secondary target or to hold it uh, off on another target. I had several experiences, unfortunately, in Vietnam where we were fired on by friendlies, uh, both from the air uh, and from artillery. Uh, I know what it's like firsthand to be caught in a uh, what's called a battalion time on target mission, uh, where a battalion of artillery fired uh, on a position, but unfortunately fired short. Uh, that is uh, something I will never forget. Uh, uh, just the shaking of the ground, um, the smell, the confusion that goes on, um, uh, the destruction that comes uh, with something like that is uh, is truly awesome. It is uh, it's indescribable to be on the receiving end of it, and it's the one thing that I always thought my from my experience in Vietnam. Uh, the, the one thing that I knew the advantage to us was is, was in the ability to deliver fire on targets from artillery or from air. Uh, and it was the one thing that made the job a whole heck of a lot easier uh, over time. As I, I guess I had uh, indicated earlier, a lot of times you didn't know. You didn't know when, the, when people were, were killed, uh, when they died, because we were able to get them in medevac relatively quickly. And that was a godsend. Um, the cases where it did happen, you, um, I guess over a period of time, you, you develop a, a wall or a shield, uh, that looks at it impersonally, uh, as best you can, because it's never, ever an unpersonal, uh, an unpersonal matter to lose a, um, to lose a comrade, somebody that you have worked with, uh, that you have shared the burden with. And that's uh, that's tough. Uh, it's tough on anybody, but you you know you you look at you take it day at a time. Uh, I would take it a day at a time, and move forward uh, from that point. Well, I suppose the uh, uh, proudest memories are uh, and the most fondest memories are of the people, um, even the Vietnamese people, uh, particularly Vietnamese people. Um, it's just uh, the memories, uh, you, you tend over a period of time, I think, to to put the bad things, uh, to make them recede in your memory, not to dredge them up, not to not to dwell on it, um, and, and to look to the camaraderie that you had, uh, you know, and, and um, uh, Vietnam has been uh, described, and I think very accurately, that it's uh, been a, a period of... Um, uh, Long periods of boredom uh, that have been punctuated by some very intense moments. Uh, but you, you look to the other periods 
when you had time to, to interact with with people and you know you look to the the funny things that happened and you know you know just uh just those things that stick stick out in your memory i don't know that i have a best memory um yeah it's just, yeah, that's really a difficult question I, that's that's a real uh, real curve i suppose um my best memory is uh, as a as a second lieutenant, um, being with a uh, company commander whom I had uh, a great deal of respect for, lived in absolute awe of this man, and um, and his ability to to command in a very absolute no nonsense way. Uh, and he has become uh, to me and in my um, and in my memories a you know what uh, what a marine officer should be um, and and it helped me focus on what I wanted to do uh, and I think that uh, from that uh, I took away a great deal of healthy respect for what it takes to be a marine and uh, particularly proud of being able to have to have served in that capacity um, and uh, it was a good experience. Um, uh, I don't think I want to do it again in Vietnam, but uh, if we did, I certainly hope we did it differently, by the way. And, um, but it did help me uh, uh, get some sort of an idea of what I wanted to do and, and try to do it in that, in that vein. That was Lieutenant Colonel Jim Reardon. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rulhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.